Once again, this is Gary Wolf with the Coon Street Podcast. Uh, today I'm spending 10 minutes with one of America's most important novelists, Kim Stanley Robinson. How are you, Kim? Uh, I'm, I'm good, Gary. Thanks for that. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty much unarguable by now. I mean, a lot of people have, uh, I mean, even the New Yorker said that years ago, didn't they? Well, one of uh, a writer that got published in The New Yorker said that. So, yes, I don't know that it was institutional, but it was very much appreciated. And, yeah, it's uh, nice to be part of the conversation. I think you are. I think I think one of the things that uh, we probably uh, should mention is that uh, one of your classic earlier works, the, the Three Californias trilogy, is out in one enormous volume now. Yes, that was a great thing that Tor did. Uh, they have a classic series and bundled the three together. And it wasn't it's big, it's, but it isn't um, completely unwieldy. It still fits in a way that probably three of my later novels you could never do that with. That's probably so, true. Well, yeah, it was good to see. It comes out. Well, there are without mentioning too many names. There are novelists for whom this 894 pages would barely be one novel. Yeah, that's right. So I felt nice and youthfully slim in that sense. <laughs> well, are you uh, under the lockdown? Are you able to get any reading done? I'm hearing people who say they can't concentrate at all and other people who say it's Proust time. Yes, I'm more in the latter camp, although I haven't changed my habits much. And I mostly through the day treat my reading as instrumental part of my work and then when i uh at the last part of the evening when i'm getting ready for bed then i will sit down and read fiction and i've been doing that as usual and so Mm -hmm. your call uh our conversation and your your usual format here in terms of these things comes at a good time because just just last night i finished hillary mantel's the mirror and the light so it's the end of her massive trilogy about uh, thomas cromwell so the, the mirror and the light or the mirror and the lamp the mirror and the lamp is abrams the old okay. you're, a liter- you're an english major i can tell okay, okay you're right <laughs> absolutely an old abrams english major mirror, mirror and the light right yeah oh. yeah so you've read the whole trilogy i have indeed yes and um, it's impressive. I liked it. I thought it was very strange in ways that I found really interesting in that um, if you take the three volumes, speaking of three books into one, you couldn't really do it. This one's 750 pages. Wolf Hall was really long. Uh, bringing Up the Bodies was a bit shorter, but it's a, it's got to be um, nearly 2,000 pages. Well, it's absolutely uniform in... Uh, style, form, structure, point of view. It never leaves Thomas Cromwell. It's always in present tense, except for his memories, which sometimes go into the past tense. Mm-hmm. It's got all of its quirks. It's got the same pace throughout. All of these things I kind of hate uh, <laughs> as as a rule. Yeah. And and the longer it went on in this one, the more I was uh, my attention was drawn to it, and I was thinking this this it seems like this can't work, but it did work. I think she she knew what she had. She knew what she wanted. And well, it sounds like she. Is, is, everything I've read about her is that she's an extremely controlled, uh, disciplined writer, uh, which I guess is important using as much material as she did. But I mean, I can't imagine. And I've not read. I read 
most of the first one, which I liked, and then I got distracted by something else. And I, I, you normally can't bring a present tense narration off at any length at all, it seems to me. I only tried it once in the Gold Coast to try to make the point that in the society of the Gold Coast, they had no sense of their own past and they were stuck mm-hmm. in a permanent present. That's not true for this. And I, I, most of Gravity's Rainbows in present tense, it, it can work for certain effects. And um, once you've chosen it, both I think the reader also loses track of it. It's not, in the end, very different. But staying at the same pace of narration and with one viewpoint character for 2,000 pages is quite a feat. And yet now I feel like I knew what it was like to try to deal with Henry VIII. I feel I know that group of people. It was very vivid. Uh, I think she's great. I think she's one of the best novelists working. And I'm just saying that it's a peculiar uh, feature of her style in this book. Now, she has different styles. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, her great book about the French Revolution has a roving point of view that goes amongst the three principal revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. And her smaller novels that are like more uh, present day are set in the 1950s. These are quirky, funny. They're very much different than her usual, uh, than these, that when you think of her, because Wolf Hall has become her signature work. And yet she's got enormous range and can be hilariously funny. So I, I, I'm really impressed by Hillary Mantel. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad it, you know, it's like Dr. Johnson said, it, it's not a book I wish to be longer. So anything else you're reading? Uh, I am reading a massive biography of Daniel Defoe that really? will t- take me forever. Yes, I'm, I, I really like Defoe's novels. I mean, I think they're more than... Um, up to any other novels. He's one of the greats, and he's very weird, uh, and he's one of the first novelists, and so he's kind of inventing it out of previous materials, you know, Mm -hmm. like confessionals or... um, I mean, the novel's been around a long time, but certainly he's in on the start of the, the English novel as we usually think of it, so I've always enjoyed reading him, and I have a good friend here at Davis who's a professor in the English department who teaches 18th century, which I generally never liked, but because of Defoe, he reminded me I do like Defoe. So, so is, I'm this learning... a, is this a new biography? Uh... No, I think it's from the 90s. It's, oh. a, it's a scholarly tome that goes way too deep into the political history of the time and into um, Defoe's work as a pamphlet, pamphleteer. But, um, Who's the author? Uh, Paula Backschneider. Okay. And I would say that it's a good job, although she's got way too much to tell us about his ticky-tacky work as a as a paid writer for the governments. And he right. was he would write for anybody. Uh, he had his his uh, religious and political principles, but he was a very flexible moderate who was always trying to create reconciliations and attack the side he thought was wrong. And mm-hmm. it was a it was a crazy life. He got he got. Um, uh, thrown into jail for uh, for libel. He he was on the run from creditors. He was it was just an absolutely crazy life. So it's kind of comforting in a way. If you think you have problems, you just read about Defoe and you realize you don't have problems. Um, Defoe had problems. I gather, and he's he's undergoing a kind of a renaissance now. I guess with the Journal of the Plague Year being show, showing up on all kinds of lists of things you need to read. Uh, 
Yes. Yeah. Defoe and, and, and Boccaccio and everybody who wrote anything during a plague or about a plague seems to be in the news these days. Yes, and it's a good thing to read his because what you have to understand is it's a historical novel that he wrote. Uh, I mean, he was born in that year in London, but then he wrote the book. He was about 50 or 60. So he was doing a historical novel and reconstructing it from documents he had at the time and, and from people's stories told to him. And and yet he puts it as a first person account. I was there. Uh-huh. So, so again, the, his, he not only was he in on the invention of the modern novel, but also the instant invention of the historical novel. The historical novel that is fascinating. Yeah. So he's he's a real talent at uh, taking on voices. And I I just finished a novel that will come out in October. Actually, I finished it back in January. So it's a pre pre pandemic novel and God knows what it'll read like now, but um, <laughs> um, it's made up of a whole bunch of fictionalized eyewitness accounts of things happening over the next 30 years. And so I had gotten interested in all kinds of 18th century modalities and, and genres like um, the it narrative where the, the narrator is a uh, a coin or a violin or a carbon atom. Um, these these it narratives were popular in the 18th century, and and mm. Defoe is he amongst everything else he would do things like that too. So um, it partly came out of my own working problems, and I would probably I would add that one of the things that boggled my mind about Mantell's novel is she has one point of view, one mode for 750 pages and really for 2000 pages and uh-huh. my my recent one is a kind of a uh, a slurry of of styles and modalities that uh, changes every 5 pages or so to something completely different so um it's a real different approach well as long as we've already gotten to that uh, that's this is the ministry of the future which is yes i, I it's october i think uh yes, no, nobody true. seems to know when anything's actually being published anymore well, it has a birthday uh, the okay. way, because of the e-books. Now, whether that holds or not, I, no one can say for sure. But if, if things uh, work, it will be something like October 4th or October 6th. So I saw a birthday for it. Excellent. Well, that's that far in advance. I think I think you're safe. I gathered some of the summer books that are being bumped back. Now. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, like every other industry, I mean, what do you do when you – your your buyers can't come into the stores or or go to the book events. I mean, it is kind of a spanner in the works, but is it's a relatively minor issue compared to the more essential services. But um, still, it's been- well, are, are, have you got other um, as, as long as we're uh, talking about what you've got? Anything else coming out? I mean, you've not been writing a lot of short fiction lately. No, that's right. I, I've really had to focus on these novels, and I haven't had any short story ideas anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing occasional pieces of uh, uh, commentaries, you might say. Yeah. And I, I just took on a, a gig for uh, the new magazine, Bloomberg Green. And so I'm going to be a monthly columnist in Bloomberg Green. And I'm oh. going to try to present the future and obviously be me a kind of a um, left future to readers of Bloomberg, which I regard as a uh, a great opportunity. <laughs> Is this going to be an online magazine or an actual physical magazine? It's already online. Okay. And uh, it, in fact, it has the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere is in its uh, headline, just changing numbers as you look at it. Um, but it will be also a paper magazine and I, think a monthly with the first 
issue out in June, and that seems to have been confirmed. They say so. Oh, and I, yeah. excellent. I, I wonder if you're getting um, are you getting called upon to comment about things partly because uh, I, not that you've written. Well, actually, I guess the Years of Rice and Salt is the plague novel in one sense, uh, but the extent to which you write about radical changes, which permanently seem to take place. And it's something that science fiction has always done. But I don't, until this summer, I don't get a sense that most of the people I know, the non-science fiction readers, are beginning to accept the notion that the world will never be the same. Yes, I have the same impression. And I have a funny story in a way in that I was on a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon from March 11 to March 19. I was completely out of touch with the world and on march 19th i hiked up to the rim and damned if we weren't in a completely different world and i had on my iphone three or four requests from for commentary from places that hadn't checked in with me before Mm. and indeed one of them i i wrote that soon should come out in the new yorker and because the new yorker said that nice thing about me i thought i would they would they would be the venue that i would reply to but what was obvious was that the world wanted a science fiction writer to explain this new science fiction scenario. And I had to tell them, uh, <laughs> I, I got nothing. I mean, everybody is a science fiction writer equally. And the only difference between those of us who do it for a living is that we write this stuff down. But everybody thinks forward. Everybody speculates about their own personal futures. So um, the there's no particular craft or expertise that I could bring to bear. And I was stunned, to tell you the truth, when I came out March 19th, the quickness oh, of the change. Because I guess, I mean, I've never been able to reconstruct it, but I guess things happened that week in about two or three day period, the institution of a big lockdown. Um, so, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's been um, it's been really educational to me of what. Uh, how this culture regards science fiction and, and in some ways inaccurately feels like we got some some key to the future that we don't really have. No, but there was a, a point that uh, I was talking to well, Karen Fowler, your friend, the other day, and, and we were thinking that two things. One, it's very seldom that the entire world population experiences essentially the same thing at the same time. Yeah. But a point that she was making was interesting is that uh, despite what our government may be saying, despite the the lunatic fringe, which is not really a fringe, you do have millions of people acting uh, collectively in the surface in the service of rationality. People are doing smart things uh, in large numbers. Yes. And is that encouraging in the law? I mean, if we, I, I guess I guess. It, it, it may be a little bit idealistic to project that into the future, but if we can do this with a virus, could we do this with issues like the environment? Well, I think in this case, there is the pressure of death, of immediate catching a disease and dying from it that right. is a, like a fire under your butt that makes you act. So uh, I, I never, I do think it's uh, impressive and and encouraging and i've been saying for a long time that science is uh believed in by everybody because when you're sick you run to your doctor so now we're seeing a mass demonstration of that uh, point that uh, medicine is science and that when we're scared first of all without science we wouldn't even know that this uh, pandemic was happening because it's statistical and it's global and no individual could tell 
So we're being told about it, then we're being told how we can dodge it, and and this is science and government being um, believed in and acted on, except for, as you say, that rather big lunatic fringe, <laughs> which, you know, unfortunately includes the White House. So this is a really bad time to have a, um, a lunatic as president. The timing well, is. is terrible. And one of the things that occurred to me is that um, the even going back to you, you, you had a pretty, uh, I guess, in the beginning of the science in the capital trilogy, you had something like a Reagan-like president. But even yes, even, yes. even when you were imagining a bad anti-scientific president, you didn't come any close anywhere close to what we've got. No, this is would be regarded as a stark. Um, in you know a heavy-handed, ham-fisted satire. If you yeah. were to write, write it down, it would be going too far. Exactly. So um, it is part of the weirdness of this whole moment. Well, I think we're about at the end of our ten minutes. So uh, again, I've been talking with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Thank you very much, Stan. Oh, thank you, Gary, and say hi to Jonathan uh, too. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay, and once uh, again, oh, go ahead. Well, I've been listening to uh, to your 10-minute uh, podcast, so um, Excellent. Uh, it's fun to be joining it. So. I'm glad to have you. Right. Uh, and again, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. This is Gary Wolf. Join us next time.